right. So we are in the Eternal Word series. We are continuing through the Gospel of John. We're going we're to look at uh, John chapter 12, verses 27 through 36. Last week, I would say that we looked at the, the power of, of the cross, uh, or, or you could say the purpose of the cross. That would be a better way to say it. We looked at the purpose of the cross, which was to be uh, a substitutionary sacrifice for sins, that Christ died on the cross. That was a purpose. The purpose was to, to die for sinners. And so this, this morning, we're going to look at the effects of the cross. That's what I've titled the message, The Effects of the Cross. Would you, would you pray with me before we jump in? Father, I thank you for our study through the Gospel of John. I thank you that we can open your word and we can, we can go systematically through your word, verse by verse, and we can squeeze out as much as we possibly can from your word, because we believe that your word is divinely inspired, that it is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so, Lord, we lean into your word, and we, we ask that you would speak to our heart today, and that you would reveal to us who you are, what you've done for us, and what you are asking of us. And then, God, I pray that you would help me this morning to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The effects of the cross. So, by way of introduction, who's ever heard of John Wooden? Coach John Wooden. Coach John Wooden coached the UCLA Bruins to 10 NCAA basketball titles. He's considered by many to be the greatest collegiate basketball coach of all time. And he was a Christian. He's a Christian man. He wrote a couple of books about his faith in Christ. And uh, he was married to his wife uh, for 25, excuse me, for 53 years. Uh, his wife died in 1985, and he had been married to her for 53 years up to that point. And he stayed single from 1985 until he died in 2010 at the age of 99. He, he chose to stay single. He could have got remarried, but but he chose to stay single, and, and he had this sense of commitment to his wife, this sense of commitment to his marriage vows. And obviously, a spouse can die, and you can be remarried, and, and it doesn't show a lack of commitment. But in Coach John Wooden, he had this sense of commitment to his wife. He didn't want to get remarried. And listen to what John Wooden said. He said this, Another old-school quality that I've chosen to maintain is the fact that I am a one-woman man. And Nellie and I were married for 53 years. I've never been with another woman. When she died two decades ago, I decided to, re to remain loyal. I was loyal to her in life, and I will remain loyal to her memory until we are forever together again. I'm not afraid to die. Death is my only chance to be with her again. And so, interesting story about his commitment to this. You know, he, again, you don't have to when your spouse dies. God could give you the grace of another marriage. But he was committed to this. And he would write a letter to his wife, his deceased wife, every day for 25 years. He'd write a letter to her every day for 25 years. And when he died, he had these stacks of letters on his nightstand and on his dresser and all over the bedroom because of this commitment that he had to communicate his love to his wife every single day. Isn't that amazing? What a, what a commitment. And when we're thinking about, introduced with that story, to, to, to think about commitment, to think about our commitment to the things that we're called to, you know, our commitment impacts people. 
When we're committed in our marriage, it has lasting impact. When we're committed to our children, it has lasting impact on their life. When we're committed on our jobs, it has lasting impact. When we're committed to our call, I love love to hear the passion and the commitment that the Carruthers have for the call of God on their life. When we're committed to something, it impacts people's lives. And in essence, this is what we're going to see in this section from Jesus. The effects of the cross. The cross is not here yet. The cross is only a day and a half, maybe two days away from this conversation. Uh, It is believed that this is the last public communication that Jesus has, potentially public to, to outside crowds before he goes private with his disciples in John chapter 13. But he, in these verses we're going to read today, he is going to communicate his commitment to the cross, communicate his commitment to the purpose that God had sent him for, and as a result of that, we're going to see the effects of that commitment, the effects of his commitment to the cross. That's what we're going to look at. Let's look at the text. John chapter 12. Look at these verses. And I want you to think. Think about that introduction. Think about the commitment. Think about commitment. Think about The commitment of Christ as we read this. John 12, starting at verse 27. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by which kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Did you, did you see the commitment of Christ in those, words, in those verses? Did you, see, did you see the effect of that commitment? Well, if you didn't, I'll I'll show you. (laughs) Here we go. Jesus' commitment to the cross. We're going to see three effects of the cross. I'm going to show you his, you see his commitment, that first verse, don't you? Now my soul is troubled, right? You see the commitment, but what shall I say? Father, take this from me. He said, no, this is the purpose I came. And then we're going to unpack that, because of that commitment, the effects of the cross, the effects of the cross on Christ, but also on us. So three effects of the cross, three effects of Christ's commitment to the cross. First one is this. It's in your handout. Be on the screen. Here's the first effect. The weight of sin fell on the innocent son of man. The weight of sin fell on the innocent son of man. Look to verse 27. We saw it there, right? Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Is that what I should say? Because my soul is troubled? But for this purpose, I've come. So, so what is the effect? The first effect we see 
because of the cross that is coming. Again, the cross is not here yet. The cross is to come in a, a day and a half, two days from now. The cross is going to come, and Christ is going to embrace the cross. So, so what is the first effect of the cross that is to come? The first effect is that the weight of sin has fallen, is falling on the innocent Son of God before it actually falls on him in death. He says, now is my soul troubled. Now is my soul troubled. Jesus is feeling the weight of sin that is about to fall on him. This is the first effect. I want to break down the words that Jesus says there. Now is my soul troubled. Now soul troubled. What does now mean? Well, now means now. It means at this moment. It means right now. This is my ever-present reality. It's a, it's, it's not, obviously it's not a past tense word. It's not like, it's not a word that also communicates that it's only in this moment. It's this idea that it's a continual reality. He understands that he's not there yet. And he understands that there's a a greater weight to be born as he moves forward. So it's this idea of this continual reality that he's embracing. Now, this is my ever-present reality now and moving forward. He's saying, he's saying, this is the moment. He's thinking about the cross. He's thinking about what he's about to experience. He says, so he says, now is my soul. What does he mean by soul? The word soul there means the inner self, the heart and the mind. The heart and the mind, uh, psychological faculty, psychological faculties, our heart and our mind. In, in essence, you could say Jesus is saying this right now, in this moment, my heart and mind, the deepest part of me is what? It's trouble. It's trouble. What does that word troubled mean? Troubled means this. It literally means that the Greek word there means stirred up, great distress. This is an interesting one. It means to cause a riot, to cause a riot. So, so it could be said, could be paraphrased that Jesus was saying this. Right now, in this very moment, the deepest part of me in my heart and my mind, I am deeply troubled and in great distress, and it feels like there's a riot going on on the inside of me. Wow. It feels like there's a riot going on on the inside of me. My, my insides are stirred up. Have you ever had that feeling of, of the insides like just being twisted up like a knot? This is what Jesus is explaining right now. This is the first effect of the cross. The weight of sin is falling on the innocent son of man. I want you to just think about that for a second. Jesus was not just the son of man, but he's the son of God. He he was fully God, truly God, and truly man. But so think about who he was as truly man and truly God. When he walked the earth, he did so many mighty miracles. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. And so the God, man, who healed the sick and raised the dead, and what we know from the Gospel of John, it says when we studied earlier in chapter 1, it says that nothing was made that was made without Christ. Christ is the creator. So the creator of the universe, the one who flung the stars in the sky, the one who healed the sick and raised Lazarus just a little while earlier, he says, my soul is troubled. I mean, what a picture. What a reality to ponder. This is a picture of the humanity of Jesus. He he was truly God and truly man. So so why did Jesus feel this way? That's what I think of when I understand the weight and you feel the the, the, the weight of it through the words and what it means. Why did he feel this way? Why was he deeply troubled? Was it it the pain of crucifixion that he was about to experience? 
I think that could be a part of it. I think that could be a part of it. I don't think it's primarily because of the weight of the physical pain he was about to experience. I think that was part of it, but not primarily. There are, there are others, there are martyrs throughout Christian history that after the resurrection have died for, for their faith and would have experienced pain, and, and, and maybe they, they didn't express it like Jesus did here. So I don't think it's necessarily just the crown of thorns he knew that was coming and, 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 the, and the lashing and the whipping and the spitting and the, and the ridicule. I, I don't think that is why he is deeply troubled in his soul. I I think the primary reason why he's deeply troubled is because he would soon bear the weight of sin of all of humanity. Jesus was perfectly innocent. He doesn't know anything about sin. What is sin? He knows about temptation. He, He had temptation, but he was without sin. He doesn't understand. You know our experience with sin? Did you remember what we read earlier in 1 John? He who says he has no sin is a liar. The truth doesn't dwell in him. So we all know experience with sin, don't we? That sense of guilt and regret. That sense of pain. That sense of the impact of our sin. Jesus knew nothing of that sin. Nothing of the effects of sin personally in his life because he was perfectly innocent. So I believe this is a part of the weight. But I also believe that he's feeling the weight of the reality because of him bearing sin he was going to be separated from his father. You remember what Jesus said when he was on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew that that moment was coming. He knew that that moment had to come. The moment had to come because he had to absorb the, the separation from the father for sin. He had to absorb the wrath of God for the sins of humanity. And so he was feeling that weight. I love what R. Kent Hughes says about it. Pastor R. Kent Hughes, he says, the soul of the very God who holds the universe together was in turmoil because he would bear our sin. His soul, which had never been tainted with sin, would shortly have the sins of the universe poured upon it. He was about to endure the wrath of God as he paid for our sins. Wow. It's pretty amazing to think about. So what does Jesus say? My soul is troubled. How does he respond? Does he say, does he say, I'm out. (laughs) I'm out. I'm done. I can't do it. That's what we would say, would we not? I'm out. Separation from God. I'm bearing your sin? No way. (laughs) You get what you deserve. I'm not taking your punishment. Are you kidding me? Right? Go to jail for you. Die for you. No way. That's why it's always so amazing when you see people forgive those who have wronged them. You see sometimes that happens in court and that somebody died because of someone else's actions and a family member that survived forgives the person. I think we just, that's so, that's so much like Christ, right? So for us, we would say, I'm out, I'm done, bear the sins and the, 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 the impact of the sins of the world, no way. But what, so he, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I'm out. What does he say? He gives these kind of rhetorical questions. He's not really asking, he's not really asking the people he's talking to questions because they're, they're, they're not going to speak up. What does he say? He says, my soul is deeply troubled. And he asks this question, what shall I say to this? What shall I say to this? What's going to be my response? What's going to be my response to what I'm feeling at the depth of my soul? Shall I say this, Father, save me from this hour? Shall I say, Father, save me? What's his answer to his own hypothetical questions? But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. But for this purpose, 
I've come to this hour. That's his answer to his question. So Jesus is not actually asking questions. Jesus is not questioning his purpose. He's actually leaning into it, right? Do you see that? He's leaning into it. He's, he's saying, my soul is deeply troubled. It feels like there's a, there's a riot going on on the inside of me. I, I, I know the separation from the Father is coming, but I'm leaning into it. For this purpose have I come. For this purpose, God has sent me here. Don't, don't we see that resoluteness of Christ later on? Do you remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Matthew 26, he takes his disciples I just, man, we could do such a great study on the, the disciples, can't we? How we're, how we're still like them. Like, we are still like that. They go to the garden, and, and Jesus says, wait and tarry and pray with me. Why? His soul was troubled. They had heard him earlier say his soul was in deep distress. And they go to the garden of Gethsemane before his arrest, and they're going to pray, and the disciples fall asleep. I would do the same thing, and you would too. But listen to the, the weight on our Lord. This is what we hear again. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. That same word, troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful. Even to death, remain here. Watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I I don't think that the Lord was trying to get out of the cross. You see it here in John. He says, what shall I say to this? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? And you see him praying here again. I don't think he's trying to get out of it. I think he's just declaring the depth of his trouble and his sorrow, but he is resolute. He's saying, nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. He's submitting his will. Look at Luke twenty-two, forty-four. It's another picture, it's another account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke says this about Jesus in Luke twenty-two forty-four. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Whoa. I don't have any medical, I don't know how many medical people we have in here, but I've heard studies that, you know, to have somebody sweat because of stress and pressure in their life and their, their actual sweat is, is blood, blood begins to break through their skin, it is, is unbelievable. It's, it's, you're basically to the point of death. That's the level of his distress, that he's sweating. His sweat is, is blood. Isaiah 53, we read that last week. What does it say about our Lord, Isaiah 53? It says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is the effect of the cross. This is the effect of the cross on the innocent son of man. The weight of sin is falling on the innocent son of man. The cross is not here yet. It is to come. It's, an, it's a day, day and a half away. Friday's coming. They think this is around Wednesday when this conversation is being had. It's, it's, it's a couple of days away. He's about to experience. It's not there yet, but the weight's falling. He's feeling it. He's feeling the weight, and he is acquainted with grief. He's a, a man of sorrows. He was feeling the overwhelming weight of sins, and this is the effect of the cross on the innocent Son of God, the separation from relationship with his Father. And Jesus understood sorrow and grief. He understood feelings of betrayal and rejection. Ju Judas was about to betray him with a kiss. Just hours from now, Judas was about to betray him with a kiss. What, what happened with the soldiers? Judas goes, we'll look at this in a, in a couple of weeks here. I'm going to study through John, and, and Judas goes out, and 
He tells the Roman soldiers, tells the Sanhedrin, and says, hey, the one that I kiss is the one, is Jesus. And so he goes and he kisses Jesus in the garden before his arrest so they know who Jesus is, as if they had to figure that out. Betrayed with the kiss. Betrayed with the kiss. Jesus understood sorrow and grief, understood betrayal. What about Peter? Jesus understood denial. Peter denied he ever knew him. Denied he ever knew him. You remember? We'll get to that in John. I love the, I love the story. I love the humanity of Peter and the, and the restoration of Peter as he denies Christ. But, but, but think about that. We'll see it in the Gospel of John. Peter denied he even knew Jesus, and Jesus was within eye distance. Jesus understood sorrow and grief and tears. You remember earlier in John when Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus, what does it say about Jesus? It says that Jesus wept. He wept. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Tears are God's gift. Tears are God's gift. God in human flesh cried. God in human flesh was grieved and was burdened and was sorrowful. Tears are not something that we should shy away from. Tears are not something that God looks at us and says, why are you crying? Why are you sorrowful? No, no, our God leaned in to the sorrow. He leaned into the pain, and we might be tempted to look down on those who cry. We've all cried, haven't we? Yeah. You know, there's some people in here that cry more than others but tears are God's gift. I love what F.B. Meyer says about the tears of our Lord and about our tears. Listen to this. This is so good. Listen. Scripture never condemns grief. Tears are valuable. They are God's relief mechanism. Religion does not come to make us unnatural or inhuman, but to purify all those natural emotions with which our nature is endowed. Jesus wept. Peter wept. The Ephesians wept because they never would see Paul again. Christ stands by each of us saying, weep, my child, weep, for I have wept. This is the effect of the cross. You see, you see where I'm moving here? The effect of, of the weight of the, of the cross was falling on the innocent son of God. And because of that, because of his grief, his acquaintance with grief and sorrow and tears, he can say to us, weep, my child, for I have wept. And what that picture is, is a picture of Christ as our high priest, our great high priest. He is acquainted with sorrows and grief. He, is, he, is, he, has, experienced, he has experienced deep sorrow and pain in this earth, and, and he can sympathize with us. That's what Hebrews 4 says. Listen to this of our great high priest. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted, tempted as we are, yet without sin. Isn't that beautiful about our Lord? Isn't that an amazing effect of the cross of Christ? That not only is the cross of Christ having an effect on Jesus as a man, but because of that, that effect on Christ as a man, the sorrow, the weight, the grief, the betrayal, the denial, the rejection, all of that weight falling on him. Because of that, he becomes our faithful high priest and he can sympathize with our weaknesses. You see how the, the effect affects Christ, but then it affects us, does it not? That we can run, we can have confidence. Let us hold fast our confession that we can go to Christ. We can come boldly before the throne. We can bring our tears. We can bring our pain. We can bring our sorrow. 
We can bring our fear. We can bring our uncertainty. We can bring our worry. We can bring it all to the throne of grace. And he's, he's, he's faithful and he's just and he's good and he's kind. And he understands. That's the effect of the cross. Amen? Amen. The weight of sin fell on the innocent son of man. What's the next effect that we see from this text? Secondly, the power of sin and Satan was defeated. Here's the next effect. Look back to the text, John 12. The power of sin and Satan was defeated. Father, glorify your name. That's the culmination of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I feel the weight, but what am I going to say? God, take it from me? Father, take it from me? No. For this purpose I've come. And then he says, verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, meaning Father says, I've glorified my name before and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it and said it had thundered. It's probably what we think too, right? And the angel, and some said, well, it's, it's an angel that spoke to him. And Jesus answered, this voice came for your sake, not mine. Look at verse 31. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So Jesus boldly declared, glorify your name. Glorify, Father, glorify your name. And the, spot, the, the Father responds, you see the similarity of the baptism of Jesus? The Father spoke from heaven. It's, it's a little side note here, it's a picture of the Trinity. God is Trinitarian. He's Father, Son. He's three in one, three distinct persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. At his baptism, the Father speaks from heaven. The Son hears, and the crowd hears. The crowd hears, hears here. At his baptism, the Spirit descends as, as, as a dove, as, as, as a seal, as a sign of his ministry work that was to come. And so, Jesus is Jesus is declaring, Father, glorify your name. And the Father responds, just like in the baptism. says, I'm going to glorify it again. And I'm going to glorify. I glorified it in the life of Christ in his ministry. I'm going to glorify it again through the death of Christ. This is what he's saying. The Father is affirming what the Son is declaring about his commitment to the cross. And now, with the Father's affirmation, Jesus makes a powerful declaration about the fate of Satan and his evil world system. What does verse 31 say? Now is the judgment of this world. And now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Isn't that interesting? Now. Why now? Had the cross happened yet? No. The cross hadn't happened yet. He hadn't paid for the price of sin. He hadn't paid for the, the penalty of sin yet. Why is Jesus saying now is the judgment of this world? Now will the ruler of this world be cast out? I believe he's saying it, that it's happening now because he knows he's not wavering from his commitment. He, he has his commitment and he's going to go to the cross and he's saying basically in this moment, I'm not backing up. He's saying I'm not quitting. I'm about to carry on my shoulders the sins of the world. I am resolute to glorify my Father by finishing what he sent me to do. And so because of that, now judgment has come to Satan. And judgment has come to his evil world system. Time's up, buddy, because I'm going. You see the effect of commitment? You see the effects of the cross, the effects of commitment? That, that now, now Satan's kingdom is about to be destroyed. I think it's interesting, it's important, not just interesting, but important for us to consider the arrest of Jesus was not a victory for Satan. The rest of Jesus was not a victory for Satan. I know in the Passion of the Christ, you guys saw the Passion of the Christ, Satan's gloating, they, they, they demonstrate Satan like he's gloating around the arrest of Jesus, right? It's not a victory for Satan. It wasn't. He maybe thought it was. I don't know. 
Uh, The trial and crucifixion of Christ was not the crowning achievement of Satan. The cross of Christ was God's victory. It was God's victory. It it was his victory. Satan, Satan was just a means to an end. The cross of Christ was God's victory. And the ones that were used to facilitate the crucifixion of Christ were just a means to God's end. They willingly went that direction because of their own desires to reject Christ. But the cross of Christ was God's victory. How do I know that? Acts 2.23. And this is Peter speaking in the book of Acts. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see it? Who did it? Who, who, Who crucified Christ? Was it the Romans? Yes, it was the Romans. Who offered him up for arrest and demanded his crucifixion? Was it the Sanhedrin? Yes, it was. But who was the one who ordered the crucifixion of this innocent son of God? The father. It says there, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The cross of Christ was God's victory. It was God's plan. It was his victory. The cross was God's plan A for the redemption of sinners. The cross of Christ was God's plan A for the destruction of Satan and his schemes. Amen? Colossians 2 tells us that, doesn't it? And you, who were dead, in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The cross of Christ was God's victory. It was the victory that destroyed Satan's plans and schemes. So, so, so now, open shame, right? Open shame. Satan and his schemes, his lives have been exposed for what they are. Been exposed for what they are. You know, you know what Satan's strategy is? You can know what his strategy is. If you, if you want to figure out you want to figure out what's of God and what's of Satan. You want to know? It's real simple. This will help us in, in our life in so many ways. Here's, here's how we know. Satan's strategy is really simple. To promote anything that opposes God's word. That's, that's his strategy. To promote anything that opposes God's word. So when you look around your world today, and you look around society, you look around social media and the news, and you see what is in opposition to God's word, you can know that's a lie of the devil. That's a scheme of the enemy. Anything that opposes God's word, that's his plan. He's been the same since the beginning, has he not? Did God really say, Eve, that you can't eat of, of all the trees in the garden? You, 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 he, did he really say you can't eat of that tree? It, it, it's okay, right? Right? Satan's strategy is really simple. So, so I just want to encourage you. We can, we can know, we can see, we can call it out for what it is. He has been brought forth into open shame. He has, he, he, his strategy is, is clearly on display in our culture today. We can see it, we can call it out. But the truth is that because of the cross of Christ, the power of sin and Satan have been defeated. So, so we can see his strategy, we can know it clearly, we can understand it, but we don't have to be defeated by it. We don't have to be deceived by it. 
It's kind of like this. Think about this just for a second. If, if, if you have somebody who, who wants your destruction and wants your death, physically or spiritually, or wants to hurt you and harm you, and they do it secretly, right? Right? They do it secretly, and you don't know when it's coming. They break in your house in the middle of the night, and you can't, you, you can't expect it. You're, you're, you're caught off guard. You, you guys feel that? You, you're, you're shocked by it. What's great, what's amazing about the cross of Christ is that now the devil has no, no more sneak attack. Like he can't sneak up on you and say, oh, I never saw that coming. I didn't know that was wrong. I didn't know that that was a temptation. I, I, I didn't see that coming. Satan has no other strategy but to just oppose God's word. And if we will be in God's word, if we will be in God's word till God's word gets into us, then we, he doesn't stand a chance against us, does he? He's been defeated. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Here today, right now, Jesus is ruling and reigning. He's the only rightful ruler. He's the only rightful ruler. Jesus is not fighting for authority over his creation. He's the one who created all things. He's before all things. And he holds all things together. Jesus and Satan are not in a cosmic battle. I know some people get involved in some ideas that I think are not right as concerning spiritual warfare. And there's this idea about spiritual warfare that I think is not accurate, that we're in this battle against Satan where Satan wins sometimes and God wins sometimes. And so we get a punch in, the devil gets a punch in, and God's kind of reeling a little bit. <laughs> no, God, God won. He won. He won. And his victory is our victory. God and Satan aren't in a fight. Me and you may be in a fight from time to time. But his victory is our victory. Amen? And the truth is, the battle was over before it started. Amen? It's over before it started. The battle was over before it started. You know, we, we had a salsa taste test competition for a marriage night. Um, when, when was that? Marriage night, we had the salsa taste test. A couple months ago, something like that. And so Manny Vera had an idea. I said, hey, Pastor Ben, let's get, let's, you make a salsa and I'll make a salsa and we'll have a taste test competition and the loser will have to do the, the salsa dance. So we advertised it. I made the mistake of advertising the consequences of the loss. Because you know what really happened? It was over before it started. I, to this day, will stand by my salsa over Pastor Manny's. For a little while, for a brief moment, it looked like, it looked like I was going to win. But I, I think it was rigged. <laughs> I think that all the couples that were there were looking at my votes increasing and looking at Pastor Manny's and were thinking, man, we got to increase Pastor Ben's here because we want to see him do the salsa dance. It was over before it started. And the same is true with Satan. It was over before it started. It was over. We're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. Amen? And we're called to declare the victory of Christ through his wrath-absorbing, substitutionary work on the cross for sinners. We're here. That's, that's what we do. That's what the Carruthers are doing in Honduras. That's what we do as Christians in our life. We are declaring the victory of Christ. Amen? So what, what did we see so far? What have we seen? We've seen the weight of sin falling on the innocent son of man the effects of the cross that is to come he's feeling the weight and as a result of that not only do, do we see him personally feeling that weight 
But we see now, because of that, we have a faithful high priest who weeps with us when we weep. Next, we've seen that the power of sin and Satan has been defeated. It was over before it started. And lastly, this morning, what is the effect of the cross? Well, lastly, point number three, the curse of sin. We have the weight of sin, the power of sin. Now the curse of sin was destroyed on a global scale. The curse of sin was destroyed on a global scale. Look back to the text, John 12, 32 through 33. And I, Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The weight of sin was pressing on his soul. His commitment to finishing the work of the cross was the death blow to Satan and his evil schemes. And now Jesus makes perhaps one of his most famous statements about the impact or the effect of what he was about to do. You guys have heard that. And I, Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men, all people to myself. You know, when I was growing up, we'd had that, that verse would be quoted a lot. And I, apparently, when I was growing up, people never read verse 33. They just like stopped at verse 32 and they only read verse 32, they didn't read verse 33. They'd read verse 32 and they'd say, the Bible says if Jesus is lifted up, he'll draw all people to himself, so we got to sing lots of songs. Anybody else grow up in a church like that? No? Am I the only one? I think you grew up in a church like that. You, you guys follow me? If I'm lifted up, we got to sing praise to God. Lift up Jesus. Lift up Jesus. Lift him up. we got to sing, got to sing, got to sing, got to sing. And if we sing, we lift up Jesus, then, all, then mysteriously, everyone's just going to be drawn to Christ. And you stop at verse 33. That's not even what it means, right? This really doesn't really apply to my text. I'm just wanting to help you with something you may have believed incorrectly. Verse 33 tells you what he meant. Look at verse 33. He said this to show them what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus saying that, he's not talking about praise and worship if he's lifted up. He's talking about being lifted up on the, on the cross. If I be lifted up, if I die, I'm going to draw all people to myself. Isn't that powerful? When I'm lifted up, there, there's a reference here, what Jesus is pointing at too, there's a, there's, there's a, another meaning behind it, or there's a reference to an Old Testament account. Look at John 3 before we look at the Old Testament account of this. Jesus talks about this when he talks to Nicodemus in John 3, verses 14 through 15. Uh, Jesus tells Nicodemus, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So what is Jesus talking about here? He's saying, just like in Numbers 21, uh, there was some snakes uh, that were biting, uh, uh, poisonous snakes were biting the people of God because of their rebellion against God, and, and some of them were dying, and Moses interceded for them, and God told Moses, take a, take a pole and take a, make a bronze serpent, stick it on top of the pole, and anyone who looks to the serpent will not die. And Jesus says in John 3 to Nicodemus, that the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever would look to him and believe and look to him will have eternal life. And Jesus is referencing it again in John chapter 12. He's saying, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So, is, is with Jesus saying, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself, is, is this universalism? I think that's a valid question to ask, right? If he says, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself, is Jesus preaching a message of universalism? Does Jesus mean that when he dies on the cross that everyone will be saved? Well, the short answer is no. The short answer is 
is no, because in the account Jesus is referencing, it clearly says that all who would look to the serpent on the pole, right? And then when Jesus referenced it in John chapter 3, he referenced Moses in John 3. He says, all who, who believe will be saved. And he, references, he didn't reference the belief or the looking to in John 12. But we know the longer answer is, is, is clearly no, because we see that to be saved, to be born again, you must repent and believe. Jesus, Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, repent and believe in the gospel. What did Jesus also say? Jesus said that narrow is the way that leads to eternal life and few be that find it. And he says broad is the way that leads to destruction. Broad is the way and many will go that way. So I, I believe what Jesus is pointing to here is not that there's this universalism that's out there that, that, that Jesus died for everyone's sins and that everyone's just going to go to heaven no matter what they do or say. I think what Jesus is pointing to is the global nature of the gospel. You guys tracking with me here? Here's another effect of the cross of Christ. Jesus is feeling the weight of the, of, of the sin bearing of, uh, that he was about to experience. He was feeling that weight and that pressure. And Jesus, Jesus, because of that commitment to the cross, the schemes of Satan were defeated. And now because of his commitment to the cross, anyone and everyone, the message becomes a global message. Because the Jews believed, you remember after the resurrections, after the resurrection, the Jews believed that, that it was just for them, that Christ came just for them. And they had, to have, they had to have the Lord help them to understand that the gospel was for everyone. Do you remember Peter in Acts chapter 10? Peter and the Gentile Cornelius. Listen to what, uh, after Peter, through a vision, a series of visions, had to end up going to a Gentile's house, which he would have never gone to. What did, what did he understand? So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. The effect of the cross of Christ is that it is a global message. It's not just a select group of people now in the Jews. It's everyone. The gospel must go everywhere. I, I love the vision of heaven, Revelation 7. How does heaven look? What's it going to look like in heaven? After this, I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Did you hear that? All tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne. That means all you Cajun folk, all you French-speaking Cajuns, y'all going to go too if you put your faith in Christ. All tribes, peoples, languages, standing before the throne, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the effect of the cross. Amen? Amen. So what's the next effect of the cross? I showed you the effect on the Son of God. I showed you the effect on Satan's kingdom. I showed you the effect that the message is now a global message. How does it affect us now? I'll tell you how it affects us. How will they believe unless they hear? How can they believe in Honduras unless they hear? How can they believe in Albania where we have a missionary there unless they hear? How will they believe in Kokodri and Chauvin and Homa and Thibodeau and Lafouche Parish? How will they believe in terrible parish? How, how will they believe in this country and that country? How will they believe unless they hear? And how will they hear unless someone preaches? This is Romans 10. How will they Here, unless someone preaches, how will they preach unless they are sent? And how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That's the effect on us. The effect of the cross is that we become evangelists. 
The effect of the cross is that we become evangelists. We become the preachers who preach so that people can hear. The message we preach is a call to step out of darkness and into the light. Look at the last section, verse 35 and 36. This is our message. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. That is our message to a world that is in darkness. For a little while, for a little while you have time. For a little while you have time. While God's given you breath, you need to believe. Now is the appointed time for salvation. Believe now. That is our message. That is the effect of the cross. Even before the cross was to come, Christ is declaring the effect that the message is going to go everywhere. And as believers, as New Testament Disciples of Christ, that is our message. That we call people to be translated, to be removed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, become sons of light. To become sons of light. So what are the effects of the cross? What have we seen? Jesus is our faithful high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Sin and Satan have been defeated and now the curse of sin has been destroyed on a global scale so that anyone can look to Christ and become children of light. Anyone can look to Christ and become a child of light, and God uses us to declare that message. Amen? Amen. The effects of the cross, the price that Jesus paid, the price that he paid. I want to end with this story. There's There's a little boy. He wanted a model sailboat. You know, like a model car. I remember when I grew up, I we buy these model cars that you got to get all the glue, the little, the little squeeze glue, and you got to put that in the thing. And when you were done with it, it was all more glue than plastic because <laughs> you didn't know how to do it as a kid. So that's what I think of when I think of this model sailboat. He wanted this model sailboat to put together and to build. build. And so his parents made him save money for it. And he saved and he saved and he saved. And he went to the store and bought the model sailboat, and he builds it, puts it together. I mean, you're talking like two or three months of time to, to save and then to build. And he's excited. His model sailboat is built, and he brings it out to the lake, and he puts it on the lake, and he sets, it, sets sail for his boat for the first time. He watches it sail, and he watches it sail, and then he watches it sail, and then it finally goes off into the distance, and he can't see it anymore, and he never gets it back. He's like, it's gone. I'm never going to see it again. And he loses it. It's gone. The boat's gone. And he's so upset. He saved, and he saved, and he saved to get the money to buy the model sailboat so he could build it and, and have a boat, right? So one day, I don't know, a few months later, he's walking in town. He walks past his shop with some windows up front, storefront, and he sees his boat in the window. He's like, that's my boat. I know because it was crooked here and this piece was off here and this shop owner's selling my boat. So he goes into the store and he, he talks to the shop owner. He says, hey, that's my boat. I want it back. He says, sorry, son, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. It's mine. I'm selling it. He says, but it's, that's not fair. It's not right. It's mine. If you want it, you got to buy it. So the boy saves and he saves and he saves and he saves and he goes back after a few months again he gets enough money to buy the boat back and as he has the boat he's walking away from the shop and this is what he says 
He says, now you are twice mine. Once because I made you. And once because I bought you. And that's, that's our message. Jesus is our creator. And he purchased us by his death on the cross. And now we can be twice his. Amen? That's the effect of the cross. That's the effect of the cross of Christ. Twice his. Amen.